Hello and welcome back to the Chinese Revolution. Chinese nationalism came of age during the Second Sino-Japanese War. The arts and intellectuals embraced the struggle against the invading Japanese. Nowhere was this more fervent than in Wuhan for 10 months in 1938, when it was the heart of wartime China. Wuhan, or Hankou, as it was known in the 1930s, is the great tri-city which straddles the Yangtze River at mid-course. As a triangle combining three cities, Wuchang, Hanyang, and Hankou, Wuhan had long been a great commercial center. By the 20th century, it was also a major inland treaty port for foreign trade and light industry. It had been a center of revolutionary politics in 1911 and 1927. By the early 1930s, Wuhan was quietly prosperous and out of the political spotlight. Then suddenly, after the nationalist government lost Nanjing in December 1937 and retreated up the Yangtze, Asia's longest river, Hankou was the seat of the wartime United Front until that city fell to the Japanese on October 22, 1938. For 10 months, from January to October 1938, Hankou was the staging and logistics base for massive counterattacks and defense of the central Yangtze region by 2 million Chinese troops against the onslaught of Japanese armor units from the north and east. To those in Hankou, the outcome was not a foregone conclusion. The city itself was not under siege until the very end. The KMT formed the strategy of a protracted war of attrition. Initially, the Chinese victories were impressive. These included the major victory at Taiyuan in March and April 1938, mentioned last episode, which made national heroes of Guangxi generals Li and Bai. They were independent regional commanders connected neither to the nationalist nor communist camp. The defeat of the Japanese at Taiyuan and the devastating effects of blowing up the Yellow River dikes in June 1938 in northern Henan, also mentioned last episode, delayed the Japanese advance for months. The Japanese Navy was unable to penetrate the central Yangtze without the support of Japanese ground forces. But these successes also misled the defenders of Wuhan into the romantic notion that the city could be saved. KMT military officials treated riverine defenses as composed of three separate elements, the army, navy, and amphibious landing crafts. They did not appreciate that amphibious warfare in a riverine environment blurred the distinction between ground and naval operations. Ground troops were not bound to the land and could assault from and get supplied from the river. A breakthrough on one front could facilitate the other and ultimately neutralize the entire defense. The KMT compartmentalized riverine defense so that it relied on the environment of the central Yangtze to deal with the Japanese army by conventional armies and with the unconventional tactic of man-made flooding. The KMT defense 
focused more on countering the Japanese Navy because the Yangtze enabled Japanese naval movements but undervalued the threat posed by landing crafts. Central China's terrain is defined by the Yangtze, a river enclosed by mountains, which flows through valley plains, lakes, creeks, and swamps. The environment between two mountain ranges forms a corridor with rough terrain. Forces going to Wuhan faced an arduous march. The uneven terrain rendered Japanese mechanized divisions useless, forcing the Japanese troops to fight on foot. It was hoped that this fact would give the Chinese forces bunkered down in the mountains and behind city walls more time to prepare and would enable them to be in a better position to fire on the approaching Japanese ground forces. The topography was expected to make Japanese large-scale ground maneuvers difficult and scatter them. Unlike the North Plains, where there was more space for Japanese mechanized forces to maneuver, the mountains on both sides of the Yangtze constrained the battlefield, protecting the Chinese sides. The Chinese wanted to prolong the war by using the favorable terrain to exhaust and impose attrition on the enemy while annihilating small groups of enemies in local areas. But the river also made travel easier for the Japanese Navy. In September 1937, the Japanese Naval Aviation Force had already wiped out most Chinese surface ships. The Chinese believed we have no navy. As a result, the Yangtze, which should have been our natural barrier against the Japanese invasion, had to be defended against. China built a series of fortifications along the river to provide defense. They also sunk ships to make obstacles in the river and laid mines. The early fortifications did work and caused serious problems for the Japanese fleet. Here's a report on the first major fort. The Japanese minesweepers had trouble operating, and the Chinese took out five Japanese minesweepers, two warships, several other vessels, and a landing craft full of marines. But similarly to how I described how the Qing lost the Opium War to the British, the Chinese river defense batteries were vulnerable to land-based attacks. The Chinese defenders failed to adequately plan for infantry attacks on fortifications targeting the Japanese fleet. The Japanese were able to take them by landing troops beyond the range of the Chinese artillery. Once the forts were taken, the Japanese fleet helped with logistics and transportation, while the Chinese defenders had to struggle on foot through the difficult terrain. Chiang Kai-shek also made a mistake by ordering breaches of the Yangtze River dikes. This time it did not slow the Japanese down. In fact, by increasing water flow, it allowed the Japanese to use their boats more effectively to capture a Chinese fort that had not been taken in over a thousand years. The human costs of the defense of Wuhan were enormous on both sides, the highest of the war. In less than a year, United Front forces lost up to a million men wounded or dead, 
more than their combined losses over the next seven years. At the leadership level, the losses were even more devastating. 80% of Chiang Kai-shek's officer corps were lost. The defense of Wuhan permanently weakened the forces under Chiang Kai-shek's command, especially at the officer level. It also split his ruling Kuomintang party. Wang Jingwei, KMT party secretary general, defected to the Japanese side, along with his ally, the Minister of Information. I plan to discuss Wang Jingwei's puppet state in Japanese-controlled eastern China in a future episode. After Wuhan, the Kuomintang troops under Chiang Kai-shek's control never regained the same level of unity and military capacity. Why then had such a sacrifice been made? The battle for Wuhan did inflict on the Japanese side their greatest losses of the war. It had a sobering effect. By the end of 1938, the Japanese chose not to pursue the nationalist government into Sichuan, turning attention instead to expanding their grip on the north. Hanko blossomed until it fell in October 1938. There was open political competition between the Kuomintang and Chinese communists, and it even tolerated communist dissenters like Chen Duxiu, who had helped found the Communist Party, and Jiang Guotao, who was humiliated by the Long March, and the Trotskyists left. At Hanko in 1938, more than in any Chinese city before or since, there was a parliamentary-like debate and political experimentation the flowering of a free press, and enormous creative energies unleashed in the arts, especially in drama and music. Culturally and politically, the open treaty port atmosphere of Shanghai was transported to Hankou and reshaped to serve the war effort. There was a conscious analogy being drawn in the Chinese and foreign press to the heroic Republican defense of Madrid against Franco's fascists. Madrid fell the following year in 1939, after a two-year siege. Such an extraordinary open atmosphere was possible because Chiang Kai-shek was not really in control. Regional militarists headquartered in Hankou, like Li and Bai, as lead commanders in the field, neutralized Kuomintang and communist authoritarianism. Even the most oppressive arm of the nationalist regime Dai Li's secret police, which had been so active in Shanghai, were tamed by military politics at Hankou and focused only on eliminating Chinese who collaborated with the Japanese. The key figures reached a power-sharing consensus. They decided to execute one of their own for treason. On the damp, cold morning of January 26, 1938, a single pistol shot rang out in a quiet Taoist temple just outside of the eastern gate of Wuhan. A bullet was put through the head of the kneeling general Han Fuzhu by Chiang Kai-shek's chief of staff. Han had been governing Shandong without interference and in defiance of Chiang Kai-shek since the late 1920s. The decision to execute him had been taken collectively at a military tribunal it united for the first time in almost a decade independently powerful 
regional militarists like Li and Bai, and the Chinese warlord Feng Yusheng with Chiang Kai-shek loyalists. General Han's cowardly refusal to fight the Japanese in Shandong in October 1937 was seen as having led directly to the fall of the capital Nanjing in December and the massacre of much of the city's population. General Han remained defiant to the end, crying out at his tribunal that Chiang Kai-shek's retreat from Nanjing was equally as treasonous. General Han remains the highest ranking officer in the history of the modern Chinese military to be executed. It was politically correct. His execution was hailed on all sides of the political spectrum, including by press and control of Chiang Kai-shek rivals. The communists under Zhou Enlai and Wang Ming had just arrived, and they too applauded the execution. Such unity was not forced. In fact, the reverse was true. For the next 10 months, the press at Hankou represented remarkable political diversity and free expression. It was the absence of repressive power and the spirit of unity against the Japanese which permitted the Chinese press such a free hand. China's major publishers and editors from Shanghai, Tianjin, and elsewhere converged upon Hankou. The number of daily newspapers shot up from 3 to 14, the number of weeklies from 20 to 30, and journals from 30 to over 200. All factions and political parties were represented in the press. Censorship was relatively ineffectual. No editors or publishers were arrested or assassinated. The lengthy battle for Wuhan and the competition between militarists and their political representatives in dispensing patronage was what widened the playing field for the press. The Wuhan Ribao and Xinhua Ribao were operated by the Guomindang and Chinese communists respectively. In between, politically, was a newspaper that had moved from Tianjin, whose ties lay with the liberal wing of the Guomindang. But the most important one was under the wing of the major military figures who controlled Wuhan at the time. Guangxi warlords Bai and Li were usually opponents of Chiang Kai-shek. The importance of military patronage was equally important in the arts. Urbane treaty port cultural forms were imported from Shanghai and reshaped to appeal more broadly to rural fighters. Dramatists went to the front and worked closely with the Guangxi generals in the creation of a new kind of guerrilla theater. At the same time, a Beijing dramatist, allied to the Christian warlord Feng Yusheng, wrote five plays about the war from Hankou. A Shanghai YMCA worker organized mass singing of patriotic songs, often in celebration of the victory of Tai'er Zhuang. The flowering of third-party movements and democracy reached a peak at Hankou. In July, the People's Political Council met with 200 members, of whom half were not Kuomintang. This was the first major public political forum during nationalist rule. Four or five important third parties became highly visible. None of them had over a thousand members, nor did they have significant military backing. But they demanded a voice in government and denounced corruption and dictatorship. Best organized was the China Youth Party, 
and its journal. Differences between parties broke out over the degree to which all parties should subsume their interests to Chiang Kai-shek because of the war effort. The question was, must democracy wait because of the war? The Kuomintang and the communists competed not only against each other, but against the other parties for the hearts and minds of the people. Not surprisingly, both major parties showed that they were interested in control of Wuhan's press and politics, and not in promoting free speech or tolerance. In the spring of 1938, the government issued regulations aimed at control of the press. Enforcement, however, proved impossible when a publication had a solid political or military backing from an official or general in the United Front government. Still, by August, a few publications had closed. When possible, Kuomintang officials tried to obstruct distribution of communist publications outside of Wuhan, especially at the front, and they were partially successful. The communists likewise attempted to control the Hankou press. They infiltrated Kuomintang publications as much as possible. There's no question that they softened the anti-communist tone of some Kuomintang newspapers in 1938. Communist thugs halted distribution of small anti-communist publications by buying up copies and intimidating shopkeepers. Yue Qing, a founding member turned virulent anti-communist, was harassed. Prominent recent defectors from the communist camp like Chen Dushu and Zhang Guotao aroused the most communist attention. A concerted campaign was launched to discredit them and counter their statements. Eventually, for Chen and Zhang, life in Hankou became too uncomfortable and threatening, and they retreated upriver to Chongqing by midsummer 1938. The defense of Hankou brought China into the international spotlight. The key was connecting Hankou to the siege and isolation of Republican forces at Madrid by Franco in 1938. In terms of the international crusade to combat fascism, the progressive Western press like New Republic in New York saw an analogy to Madrid in Japan's naked aggression, as well as her use of the latest weaponry of mass destruction. Sympathetic war correspondents and film crews from all over the world descended on Wuhan. Directly from Spain came the Canadian Dr. Norman Bethune to bring medical care to the 8th Route Army in the Northwest. Robert Capra filmed the heroic defense of Wuhan. Military aid was forthcoming from both the Soviets in the form of air defense and the Germans who had Nazi military advisors on the ground until late spring 1938. World famous poets like W.H. Auden and Christopher Isherwood visited the war zone and wrote a book about the heroic Chinese defense of Wuhan. The result was much international publicity and sympathy. And with it came Western cultural influences to the interior of China on a much larger scale than before the war. There was a new openness in style and content of novels and poetry produced by Chinese writers during the war. What was emerging in Hankou was a reshaped wartime theater, film, and propaganda industry conscious of foreign models cartooning 
was an example. What made Hanko a tragedy was the promise unfulfilled. The Sino-Japanese War profoundly transformed Chinese society and politics at enormous human cost. Initially, the changes seemed hopeful. At Hanko in 1938, war and mass mobilization liberalized politics, culture, and social distinctions. But the Hanko experiment was short-lived. Politically for Chiang Kai-shek, the defense of Hanko produced a tragic outcome in another sense. The loss of his best troops and officers left him isolated in Chongqing and politically and militarily vulnerable. Within the struggle inside the Communist Party, the failure to hold Han Ko had tragic consequences as well. It was the turning point which pushed party leadership towards closing ranks behind the leadership in Yan'an of Mao Zedong and his secret security leader, Kang Sheng. In terms of the history of the Chinese Communist Party, Han Ko represented an exception, a year when the United Front integrationist lines of Wang Ming, Bo Gu, and Zhou Enlai played out as an alternative to the more separatist rural approach of Mao. Hanko in 1938 was the last stand for the internationalist Moscow-directed leadership of the party. With the fall of Hanko in October and the dissolution of the central Yangtze bureau of the party, Chairman Mao and Kang Sheng began to recover the reins of power and move towards the triumph in the party purges of 1942 to 1944. Han was the last time that Zhou Enlai exercised independence from Mao in party struggles, at least until 1971. Wang Ming, Bo Gu, and Zhou Enlai, all members of the 28 Bolsheviks, who had been pushed aside by the Long March, arrived in Han from Yan'an with a mandate to lead the Central Yangtze Bureau of the party and to apply the renewed internationalist United Front policies of the party. The link between the Chinese struggle and the siege of Madrid was taken very seriously. Countless times in newspapers and elsewhere, Zhou Enlai linked Madrid with Hanko as the forefront of the international struggle against fascism. They saw the Communist Party as part of a coalition government, needing to be integrated as fully as possible into the Kuomintang-dominated government. This included cabinet-level positions, like that of Guo in the cultural field and Zhou Enlai as Deputy Minister of the Military Council, with substantial representation on the People's Political Council. The negative cultural effects of the fall of Hanko were not apparent at first. From Hanko, intellectuals dispersed in various directions, creating cultural renaissances in Hong Kong, Kunming, Guilin, and elsewhere. But the momentum was broken. By the middle of the war, and especially after the new Fourth Army incident of 1940 and 1941, when communist forces attacked the Nationalist Army and the Second United Front was essentially over, the push towards mass culture became more simplified and rural-focused. The visual arts, drama, and fiction underwent a folk movement. 
fading fast were the more international concerns of Hankou. Ironically, as the Chinese war effort became more dependent upon American military support, foreign cultural influences were reduced. Gone was the inspiration of Madrid and the easy exchanges between Chinese and Western intellectuals. With Mao's talks at the Yan'an Forum on Literature and Art in 1942, Chinese culture on the mainland was put into the social realist straitjacket that lasted well into the 1980s. Cultural policy under the Guomindang in Chongqing went into a similar repressive direction. Both parties suspected intellectuals of being secret agents. As a result, the energy of Hankou was dissipated. The Shanghai intellectuals left the country, in some cases, or became cautious because of the new repressive atmosphere. The gifted playwright Hong Shun attempted suicide in 1941. On both left and right, violence against dissenting intellectuals increased. In the rectification campaigns around Yan'an, writers like Yang Chi-wei were executed. In the Guomindang areas, there were engineered assassinations in Kunming. As the war ended and the civil war began, the free spirit of United Front Hankou became a distant memory. The social and political transformation during the Sino-Japanese War was profound. The suffering of the people was extreme. The conflict also politicized the citizens. Maybe the most promising period of change came at the beginning of the war, when Hankou was the center of United Front China, until it fell. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Chinese Revolution.